Let us worship God. From Haggai chapter 1, verse 15 to 2, verse 9. In the second year of King Darius, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of God came by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, And say, who is left among you that you saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Is it not in your sight as nothing? Yet now take courage, O Zerubbabel. Take courage, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Take courage, all of you people of the land, says the Holy One. Work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the promise that I made you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit abides among you. Do not fear. 
For thus says the God of hosts, once again, in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations, so that the treasure of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with splendor, says the God of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the God of hosts. The latter splendor of this house shall be greater than the former, says the God of hosts. And in this place I will give prosperity, says the God of hosts. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. reading from 2 Thessalonians, the second chapter. As to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we beg you, brothers and sisters, 
not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as though from us, to the effect that the day of the Holy One is already here. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the lawless one is revealed, the one destined for destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, declaring himself to be God. Do you not remember that I told you these things when I was still with you? But we must always give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits for salvation, through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. For this purpose, God called you through our proclamation of the good news, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, siblings, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God, our Creator, who loved us and through grace gave us eternal comfort and good hope, comfort your hearts and strengthen them in every good work and word. Here ends the reading. Well, greeting Seventh Avenue Press. Um, I just want you to know that it's a real joy to be here. Um, you heard earlier my connection to Sister Sharon. Um, we are friends, yes, but we also served together for over 20 years in a Cumberland Presbyterian church. Um, so that's one connection I have with you. I understand that this church has Cumberland roots. Um, another thing I would just thought I would share is that I had, I have a, a, I had a great grandfather, never met him, that served um, as a member of the Presbyterian Church in Chinatown here in San Francisco. So that's all to say that, well, this is my first time here and first time meeting most of you, right? that we actually share a lot of history uh, that runs deep in our bones. So it is really, really a delight and a, and a pleasure. And so there's something profound about being here today. So thank you. This morning, I want to talk about long view faith. But what does it mean to have a long view? Perhaps to ask it another way, to bring it maybe closer to home, how does your spirit respond when someone tells you to take the long view? You know? I mean, it's pretty difficult, right? Taking the long view is hard because the long view is fraught with the unknown. Anyone whose retirement is dependent on the stock market knows this well. One's portfolio might be taking a nosedive, but it'll, ba it'll bounce back, right? Or so they say. There are no guarantees. Uh, and the parents among us know that it's far easier for others to have a long view for our children than we ourselves have for our children. We see their lack of maturity, their short-sightedness, their absence of drive. It's hard for us parents to hold a long view for our children. Yes? 
The long view assumes that there is something better to look forward to than one's present circumstances. In other words, inherent to the long view is hope. Now, I'm so glad that some of you had the opportunity to uh, take the trip to Angel Island. That was a delightful sharing. Tim really appreciated that. Um, Angel Island holds a very special place in my heart as well. Uh, because, you know, like Tim's story, my grandmother was detained on Angel Island back in 1916. Um, upon entering the Golden Gate on a slow boat from China. And she had to hold on to the hope that she would eventually rejoin her husband in San Francisco's Chinatown and begin a new life. Now, from the late Judy Young's excellent book on the subject, I learned that my grandmother was on the island during the worst possible time. The U.S. Department of Labor's Bureau of Immigration was particularly cruel from 1916 to 1917, which would explain why my grandmother endured so many repeated interrogations, so many attempts to trip her up and to have her deported. Month after month, my grandmother would have, would have her hopes of marital reunion dashed. It was a lengthy despair that drove her to the brink of suicide. So what happened next, you might be asking, and I promise I'll get back to the story at the end, I hope. Um, but I share this, these things simply to punctuate the point that having the long view is never easy. I would add that this is especially true for Americans. In our culture, we venerate the immediate. We love same-day delivery. We don't like to wait for anything. We want to see things in real time. We want results, and we want it now. Now, earlier this month, my wife and I uh, had the opportunity to travel to the UK as well as France and Italy. In a very real way, it was a church history tour. We visited the birthplaces and burials of great saints. We went to the birthplace of Celtic Christianity, the home of John Knox, the Bronte Parsonage, out of which came Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights. And we entered ancient cathedrals that took over 100 to 150 years to complete. Now imagine working on a church project like that, knowing that likely you'll never see its completion in your lifetime. You'll never fully enjoy the fruits of your labor. This certainly gives a taste of what it means to have the long view, to be sure. And if we're honest, it's not something we Americans have much of a stomach for. We want to be sated. We want to be fulfilled. And we want it as soon as humanly possible. Now, remarkably, our Haggai text was written to people in similar circumstances. It has been a gift to me in this small but mighty book, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, to be in this book. There are many lessons to draw from here, but I'll stick to one. Now, you all have been in Jeremiah, right, through the lectionary, I, pon um, I gather, and pondering life in exile. Um, Haggai is a post-exilic text. I assume that many of you know the story. After 70 years of captivity in Babylon, the Jews found the freedom that God had promised. The Persian king, the Persian king Cyrus, had now taken over Babylon, a progressive king by Mesopotamian standards. The Persian Empire is mighty, but Cyrus was friendly to his subjects, giving them freedom to maintain their cultural and religious practices. So just as Yahweh had promised long before, Cyrus allowed any Jews who were so inclined to leave Babylon and to return to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. Now, my new king Cyrus had some ulterior motives here, wanting the Jews to use the temple to pray for blessings for him and his family. 
And we, and we learn this from the book of, of, of Ezra. And so the story goes about 40,000 folks, really only a remnant of those who remained, packed up their bags and headed for Jerusalem to start a new life and to build that temple. Now remember, this is a remnant, a faithful remnant, as Bible scholars generally assume. Conditions are pretty good in Babylon. The emperor is friendly, the land is fertile, and business is good. And from a socioeconomic and political standpoint, there's very little reason to leave Babylon for the inferior Jerusalem. So many, many Jews stayed, as is evidenced by the large Jewish population that lives in Iraq to this day. So those who left Babylon, it can be safely assumed, did so out of obedience to Yahweh, recognizing that God's long-awaited promises are at last coming to fruition. To leave for Jerusalem was to return to their former Solomon Temple glory as the chosen people of God. But the book of Haggai, along with Ezra, paints a less than glorious picture. While the temple rebuilding project started with energy and zeal, it didn't last long. We learn from Ezra that the building project received pushback from local neighbors and from those with connections to the powers that be. Think for a moment how frustrating it was as a child when you meticulously stacked up wooden blocks only to have them repeatedly knocked down by your big brother. After a while, you get discouraged, right? And you eventually quit. This is essentially what happened for our Jewish brethren in 520 BC. They threw in the towel, summed it up as a sign that it wasn't the Lord's timing for them to resurrect the temple, and they went on for the next decade or so tending to the building of their own homes, and apparently nicely paneled fancy homes. Paneling in the Old Testament, by the way, is always associated with opulence or access. And so Haggai must rouse the people back to work. And when they do, they face another challenge, maybe a bigger challenge. It is the weight of memory, of remembering what their temple used to look like, and how little a chance they had to achieve even a shadow of what, of what once was. In our Haggai text this morning, Yahweh almost seems to rub it in, does he not? He says, who is left among you that saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Is it not in your sight as nothing? Seems kind of cruel, right? Kind of rubbing it in. Now, years-wise, there were likely a number of folks present there that, who, that were actually alive to remember King Solomon's marvel of a temple. Gold, silver, precious gemstones of every kind. What building materials these returnees from Babylon had to rebuild the temple were meager by comparison. Laboring away, what their work was amounting to must have felt like a cruel joke. It seemed like, in Yahweh's words, nothing. But this wasn't true for God. God encourages them. Take courage, O Zerubbabel. Take courage, Joshua, the high priest. Take courage, all you people, for I am with you, says the Lord. My spirit abides among you. Do not fear. You see, Yahweh isn't concerned about how beautiful the temple will look. He's not concerned about how many precious stones are inlaid or how much it will resemble King Solomon's gaudy masterpiece. God seems to be okay with the downgrade. Because what's most important to Yahweh is the fellowship, not the facilities. 
I think about this when I go back to my trip to Europe with my wife and going visiting the Bronte Parsonage where Emily and Charlotte and their pastor father lived. Um, it was a humble abode. Um, the rooms were small. It was crowded. Um, and they went through a lot of struggle, but in, in, in talking with the, with the docents there at the Bronte Parsonage, they really made a point to say that even though life was hard for this family, um, there was a lot of love in this, in this house. There was a lot of love in this house. And then, and then Tina and I went on to Rome, and we visited um, the Roman Forum and the Colosseum and uh, learned about Julius Caesar and, and the emperors and their, their palatial residences there in the Roman Forum, and just how much treachery and murder and deceit took place in those opulent buildings. You see what I'm trying to say here? You see, for God, the temple has never been about the paneling, but it's been about presence. It's always been about Yahweh wanting to be with us, to dwell with us, to be in relationship with us. And God wants to enter in and enjoy, God wants us to enter in and enjoy this sweet divine communion in turn. And so amidst the rubble of their half-baked foundation, tired and weary of laboring along, laboring away with no end in sight, Yahweh encourages them by reminding them that they are not alone, that they are intimately connected to their Lord, the one who has been faithful to them throughout the generations. They can take courage and solace in the arms of God. But wait, there's more. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once again, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake the nations so that the treasure of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with splendor, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The latter splendor of this house shall be greater than the former. Imagine that. The, la the latter splendor of this house shall be greater than the former. Now, what's important to note here is that we already know that physically speaking, architecturally speaking, there is no way that this second temple will in any way approximate King Solomon's temple. They know that. And God knows that. But some way, somehow, the latter splendor shall be greater than the former. Now, Sister Sharon told me um, about your Teze service and the reading of this passage and the passage's reference to shaking being integral to Handel's Messiah. It's, I don't know this stuff. It's not my swim lane. But it gives me chills when I think about what she shared about this. The shaking, Handel's Messiah, Haggai's prophecy. So we see that on this side of the arc of history, we know something about this latter splendor, don't we? We know something about this shaking and what God does. But my point here, however, is simply that Yahweh wants to equip them with the long view. Things may not look much Things may not look much like much right now, but things are actually moving towards a glorious conclusion. And you, people of God, are part of that. You are part of both the, um, the process towards and the culmination of. And the Apostle Paul says as much 
in the Thessalonian passage that Jenna read to us this morning. Do not be shaken. You are the first fruits. You shall obtain the glory of our Lord. So stand firm. He will comfort your hearts and strengthen you in every good work. And so, dear family at 7th Ave, I'm wondering where you might be identifying with the weary and jaded builders of our Haggai text. Maybe you've been serving for years, even decades, but it feels like three steps forward and two steps back. Perhaps you've stopped serving altogether, other than showing up on Sundays, at least most weeks, sitting in the pews waiting for something to happen. And you look back nostalgically at the way things used to be, living off the fumes of a storied past. I am all too familiar with the temptation to equate church as an institution with a history, a reputation, and a record of accomplishments, rather than the household of faith, that, that wall is space where we dwell in unity with a living God, a living God who is on the move, redeeming the world, redeeming the inner sunset, where so many people have yet to discover the healing grace of God in their lives. So what might this look like to take heart and re-engage in this work of God? Now, I'm only getting to know you, but I want to leave you with a suggestion. Pastor Jenna shared with me that y'all have started being intentional about reaching out and building relationships with others, especially those who are different, with whom you are not familiar. You want to do this cross-racially, cross-ethnically. You want to practice the justice of God in and through the ways you relate to your neighbors. I want to suggest that you practice this first with one another. I'm not saying you don't do it out there, but, I'm, but I want to say that you do this with each other as well. Maybe you already feel like you do. I'm constantly amazed at how little folks within a congregation, I'm not talking about yours in specific, but I'm talking about congregations in general. I am constantly amazed at how little folks within a congregation, even if they've been together for a long time, don't actually know each other. I mean, really, to know each other. We each have a story a history, a treasure trove of God's, of God's grace demonstrated in and through the details of our lives, just like Tim's story this morning. So, I don't know. Set up a date. Choose one of these amazing cafes and restaurants in Irving and Ninth. Purpose to be inquisitive about one another. Ask questions. What was it like to grow up as a Chinese-American in San Francisco? to be raised in an Irish Catholic family, to have grandparents whose lives were touched by the Holocaust. Now, sharing family stories, learning more about each other in a cafe on 9th Street, what does that have to do with the work of God or building the house of God? I want to say everything. In getting together, your ties are strengthened, your bonds increased, your trust grows. In your connectedness, you become iron sharpening iron, and grace can abound one to another. Together, you become witnesses to the ways in which God has been faithful throughout the decades and is actively, actively involved and at work in each of you to this day, in this moment. We meet God in each other, lest you forget that our bodies, this and this whole body, is the new temple where the Holy One dwells. So people... Get together, get to know each other in deeper ways than you ever have, and maybe, just maybe, the long view won't feel so long.
So I want to come back to my grandmother who was incarcerated on the island. She was on there for about nine months. And I was telling you, right, that she went from interrogation to interrogation to interrogation. Back in those days, right, you'd be interrogated by one officer. Then you'd be reinterrogated by another officer. And then the next week by another officer. <clears throat> I, can, I just can't imagine what it was like for my grandmother to try to have the long view there. But let me just share with you how she got off that island. It was because of the faithful service of a group of Presbyterians in San Francisco that would work and labor away. You know, my, my grandmother had trachoma. This eye disease was not uncommon to, um, to have, uh, especially when you're in those boats and traveling across the ocean and getting an infected eye. Um, and this body of believers, these Presbyterians, came together and gathered money, they pulled money together to pay for the medication to heal my mom, I mean my grandmother's eye. But they also got into lengthy and, and laborious uh, interactions with the immigration authorities. I have a binder full of the letters that were written back and forth between these Presbyterian men and women um, engaging with those cruel 1916, 1917 immigration agents. These letters were um, signed by Superintendent Higgins and, and Sister Donaldina Cameron, um, advocating to get my grandmother off that island. I believe that these, um, this family of Christians these Presbyterians, um, they had to have the long view, right? Um, it wasn't easy to be that, to, to maintain that kind of persistence over and against the anti-Chinese sentiment that was raging during that time. Um, and they didn't know what was going to result from their labors. They didn't know if all these letters that they were sending back and forth and the money they sent for the medical treatments was going to come to anything. Um, I, for one, am grateful for their long view faith because if it wasn't for them, um, my grandmother would not have been reunited with her husband, wouldn't have, give, have, wouldn't have given birth to my mom, and well, here I am, right? So I, I wanted to share that because um, I just want to encourage you all to roll up your sleeves and do the work of God in this congregation and in the inner sunset um, and to not lose heart and to know that, I mean, you're, there's an exciting adventure that is um, in play. You just have to enter into it. God is here. God is at work. That's the promise. That is the message we have received today from our prophet Haggai. So I just want to leave you with this. Take courage, O Zerubbabel. Take courage, Pastor Jenna. Take courage, all you people of 7th Avenue Press. Get up and work, for the Spirit of God is with you. Amen? Amen.
as we continue now with the prayer chants, you are invited in the silence of your hearts to offer your prayers of intercession and supplication, those prayers for the world, for those you love, and for yourself to be given to God.
Let us pray. Holy One, you have fed us in silence, in word, in bread, and in community. And for that, we give you our thanks and our praise. Amen. As you go forth, reach out to one another. Share your stories, strengthen your relationships, and be delighted by the presence of God in your midst. the grace of God who created you in love, the peace of Christ who teaches it is possible to be love, and the power of the Spirit who calls you ever forward into new experiences of love be and abide with you this day, this week, and evermore. Amen.